Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, everybody. Mark Graben here. Welcome to the podcast. It's episode 446 for April 27th, 2022. My guest today is Sumitra Vig. You'll learn more about her in a minute, but if you'd like to learn more about Sumitra and her work, you can look for links in the show notes or go to leanblog.org slash 446. As always, thanks for listening. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome again to the podcast. Uh, our guest today is Sumitra Vig. She is a partner with her advisory firm, and we're going to learn more about her and her work. She's based in Mumbai, India. Uh, Sumitra is a customer experience specialist. She is an ASQ, or as this audience probably knows, American Society for Quality, uh, ASQ Certified Manager of Quality and Organizational Excellence, and she's a master trainer, uh, and, and she's been a, a retail banker with years of hands-on international experience in Asia, Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. Um, Sumitra has designed and conducted uh, a lot of successful training programs. She's mentored employees, and she's created an impact across continents. So I think there's a, a huge opportunity um, to, to learn and, and think about things that are transferable uh, across continents and across industries. So, Sumitra, thank you for being here today. How are you? Thank you for having me on your show, Mark. I think after that introduction, that glorious introduction, I'm just hoping I can do justice <laughs> to everything <laughs> no. that you said. Um, it's I'm, absolutely amazing, sorry, Mark, that we can connect across continents with yes. different time zones. That is just so amazing. Yes, you are uh, my second guest in the history of the podcast. Where we've connected through Zoom uh, from the U.S. to India. So, yeah, that's a very exciting opportunity to be able to do that uh, again today um, with you. So there's a lot to talk about around uh, today around um, quality and, and customer focus and things that will be, I think, really relevant to people regardless of where they're listening from and, and what industry um, that they're in. But before we dive into that, you know, my, my kind of standard question, uh, Sumitra, I'll ask a, a version of it to you. You know, how did you first get introduced to quality in your career? Why did this become so important to you? So when I first joined uh, a global bank, I had no idea of how a bank runs because my summer internship had been in a FMCG. So uh, the experience was totally diverse. I didn't get selected in the fright in the final round of uh, the summer internship. So as they say, every hurdle is a kind of a turning point and an opportunity for something better. So it was actually by accident that I landed up in a bank, but I had so much to learn. And I was actually placed in the operations floor where we processed high volume transactions of customers from across the globe. So we had to handle funds movements and book deposits for them. I had to learn on the job. And I think my interest and, uh, you know, intention to learn started from there where we were practically overwhelmed with volumes. And we realized that if we had to serve our customers well, we have to figure out efficient ways to do it. So I think my lean learnings came on the operation floor uh, of the bank. And we learned a lot. I've learned from my experiences and my mistakes. 
So, I mean, I know you do the Favorite Mistake podcast, which yeah. I think is such a beautiful title. <laughs> I see that, that cup. There's I my mean, coffee mug, yeah. Right, you throw the spotlight on the fact that it's okay to make mistakes. So yes, definitely my learnings have been from those early days of huge volumes and trying to serve the customer in the best possible way, whether it's technology, uh, you know, removing disconnects and processes and so on and so forth. So um, it it seems like there are different settings, like what you're describing was probably uh, what, what people might call the back office of a bank, like really high volume, maybe more like a factory that's handling paper or envelopes and then information as opposed to the retail banking setting where there's that direct interaction with the customer. Right. So luckily for me, after my movement, after I worked in operations for like almost two years, the bank realized that now I know what it takes to run the organization from the back office point of view. And I could actually now use those learnings to serve the customer. Uh, And so I was transferred to a branch where I ran the branch and had to actually face customers. And my knowledge, my back office knowledge actually helped me to serve the customers well. So you can say that I have experience in uh, actual customer interface as well. And let me tell you, it's like it's an absolute challenge to like be there in front of a customer. You know this, you're an experienced professional. So it's you're right. It's two different hats. One is the back office hat and then the front office hat where irrespective of what you may be going through at home or any challenge that you face, maybe a train that brought you late to work, you still have to smile in front of the customer and you have to be there, be very present, be very focused because it's after all, um, in, in healthcare as well, if they're trusting you with your with their lives, in banking, they're trusting you with their wealth and their money. Yeah, so. yeah I was, I was going to draw a parallel to healthcare because after starting my career in manufacturing, there was none of that direct customer interaction, but in healthcare, you might be working in the back office, uh, if you will, of, of processing and sterilizing surgical instruments where you don't directly see the patient, or you could be working in the part of the organization where they are having the face-to-face um, interaction with the patient, prepping them for that surgery that uses um, those instruments. But yeah, I mean, that, that, that was a huge learning opportunity for me being in a setting where you actually have the customer is not a concept. The customer is right there in front of you. So I'd be curious to hear a little more, Sumitra, of you, you talked about bringing lessons from the back office into retail banking. Can you think of an example of, of where that operations experience helped you in, in, in front of the bank customer? Yeah, sure. So I'll, uh, I'll actually, uh, quote a uh, something that I read and I don't know how correct it is but I read that uh, the comedian Rich Voss I think is his name who actually went to deposit cash at uh, the uh, Bank of America uh, teller counter and uh, the the teller actually asked uh, him for his ID even though he was depositing cash <laughs> like he goes are you trying to tell me that people are trying to deposit <laughs> money in my account and you're telling them no. The point <laughs> is, so I don't know how factually correct that is, but the point is that when you have worked in operations, as I'm sure the Bank of 
America teller has from their earlier experience, you know that there are rules and regulations, unfortunately, which have to be complied to. So in this particular example, of course, it's anti-money laundering and the fact that you don't want terrorist money landing up in your account. Once the customer begins to understand those rules and regulations are for the safety and protection of the customer, they become more acceptable. And then the bank rule kind of becomes first time right, if you know what I mean, if we can explain that. And that knowledge comes from back office experience, from learning the rules and regulations. So that I mean, we faced it every day, like customers would tell us, why are you telling me this? So another example, since you talk of financial services is, you know, sometimes in a loan application, if if our audience, I'm sure, has applied for loans, you have to sign in a zillion places. (laughs) I don't know if you've experienced that. And the question to ask really is, is this necessary? How important is it? Can we reduce the number of signatures in some way, not only to reduce the time it takes, but just to make the experience more customer friendly? Can we go digitally? Can we scan some of the signatures? And I don't want to jump to solutions, but yeah, these these are experiences that come from a knowledge of, you know, just like grinding yeah. the hours yeah. and problems. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple. Yeah, I've I've been through that. Let's say, especially uh, mortgage documents. So many signatures, so many pages. Um, it's interesting to challenge. Yeah, like you said, without jumping the solutions to identify the problem statement, but then more importantly, to challenge what the, the way it's always been done. Like, well, we've always signed many, many times on many, many pages of paper. Well, the way it's always been done doesn't have to be that way forever. Absolutely. And it's interesting you bring up the point because in in one of the workshops uh, that I that I helped a company with um, and, you know, based on an assessment, I sort of felt they were doing a great job and I asked the company to apply for a great place to work certification. So uh, and I'm really happy to note that they got certified. My own learning in that was that it that even if one doesn't get satisfied or certified, you can still learn so many things along the way. The reason I bring this up is because I I, I got a chance to attend a, a human resources um, a presentation made by, by, uh, by IBM, which of course is a great place to work. And it's exactly to your point. They have the concept of wild ducks, which is anybody in the organization can question the status quo and can question why are we doing something like this? And that is laying the seeds of innovation. So I think that questioning is 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 absolutely key to bring about any improvement. Yeah. And then the other thing you describe, um, I, I have heard of the comedian Rich Voss. It's a name I haven't heard uh, in a while, but um, I, I recognize that moment of like, yes, it, it, it's different. Uh, you know, putting money in versus taking it out. But I can imagine even if the money gets put in the wrong account, there there are the point, things you pointed out, but then there's also the rework uh, effort on the bank, right? So it's better, we'll come back and talk more about this. Depositing the money right the first time prevents rework. It prevents additional cost and risk and effort. But I think you, you, you made a really important point there that has broader application about explaining the reasons why. I think that can help from a customer service standpoint, even from an employee satisfaction standpoint. To me, one of the key 
points I learned about lean and standardized work is that you don't just tell people what to do or call, uh, you know, employees don't tell each other what to do. You explain why and that that helps people understand and, and it helps them embrace the standardized work in a way that's not based on compliance, but it's based on understanding. So I sure. think that's a really, really powerful thing you said. Sure. And I think you explain it very well. Like given giving a rationale sometimes uh, can help us be first time right in many ways. Yeah. So on that point of first time right, that was one of the things um, we were going to really take a deeper dive into today. Hopefully we're doing the podcast uh, right <laughs> the first time. <laughs> yes. Um, I think we are so far. Um, I wanted to make sure I uh, introduced you properly the first time. So, you know, there was a time to get it wrong or to ask during uh, our pre-recording. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, um, this idea of first-time quality, first-time right, doing it right the first time, you know, I think that runs the risk of becoming a slogan. But I'm, I'm curious, like, really deeply what, what that idea means to you, Sumitra, in your experience. It's a lovely question, and I'm happy that right at the beginning we are talking about it because one thing I would, at least from my standpoint, want to create a mindset in the minds of the audience that that chooses to tune in to the podcast is that first time right somehow has a connotation that there is no mistake. But I want to draw attention to your beautifully titled podcast, which is the favorite mistake where you have all of the presenters telling you about just one of the many that they have made. Richard Branson of Virgin, uh, he actually says there is only one certainty in business, and that is to make a mistake. And I feel when organizations come with that mindset, there is more of a human touch to the whole aspect of lean that it's okay to make a mistake. The point is what have we learned from that mistake? How can we make sure that the same type of mistake is not made again and again? And even if a mistake has been made, can we at least appreciate that human being for the effort put in? Because nobody comes to work rolling up their sleeves and saying, you know, I'm going to make a mistake today. So that's the mindset. And, and, and if it is okay, okay, I want to actually suggest a paradigm shift where instead of first time right, if we can think of next time right, not with the intention of letting everybody out of the hook, not trying to be lenient, not trying to excuse a mistake, but just so that we are constantly learning. And uh, there is a book, and we can apply this actually even in our daily lives. So Atomic Habits is a book written by James uh, Cleary, which is basically that if we can just keep improving a little bit every day, then at the end of one year, we suddenly have a 37% compound improvement. So mm -hmm. for first time, right, that is what I wanted to communicate, a kind of a mindset of mm. acceptance. Though sadly, today in many organizations, we still have the blame and the shame. Right. And so that is why I wanted to create that first mindset before we go forward. Yeah. What do you think, Mark? Is, I, is I, 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 I think that's uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I really like that framing of it because you, you mentioned the word fear or blame. So I was thinking about 
how a slogan, the problem with slogans of, let's say if we put up posters that say, do it right the first time, people look at the poster and say, well, what, what do you think I'm trying to do? Like it might be insulting, but then I think there's this risk of, let's say if an organization says, we have a zero tolerance policy for uh, defects that might drive people to hide mistakes, covering up defects, things that are you know, survival tactics individually that are bad for the organization. What, what do, do you, are you, are you trying to avoid situations like that? Right, right. No, absolutely. And, and, I, and I think that if we have this mindset, then we can go forward and actually define what is first time right. So, uh, of course, the definition is like very easy. It's from Six Sigma. You have a lot of lead practitioners listening in. It has the benefits of low cost, high productivity, improved customer satisfaction, improved loyalty, all of which are great for the business. And it's basically the concept of doing things right, not only the first time, but each and every time. But I want to go like two steps back and take it to the design, the product design stage, because I think first time, right, starts right from the time an engineer designs the product or service right up till the delivery. So it's a kind of end-to-end. It begins with what the customer expects. So if you look at design thinking, the first step is really empathy. And what does a customer want? You know, if you look at that example from financial services of the multiple signatures, the customer really doesn't want that. The customer wants to loan. And so what does the customer expect? That should really be the starting point. And if we can arrive at that and base all our definitions of first time right on that, and then we measure ourselves to that. Because as we know, in quality, it's all that one of my quality gurus taught me that measure, measure, measure. So there are, of course, first time right measures. One measure that I used a lot was problem incidence rate, which is basically you take the, the problems, the number of problems faced by a customer in a certain measurement period. And then hopefully there's a declining trend. So if you track the problems month on month, is there a declining trend and do like a Pareto analysis and to figure out which are your main problems. So I'll give you an example from one of the companies I worked with, and this is also a finance company, and maybe you can share healthcare problems, mm-hmm. not, but so, sure. so, so, so when we looked at the problems, because obviously a problem means the organization hasn't been first time right. So a good way to measure first time right is how many problems do you have? Because that's the easiest way to get a measure of first time right. Uh, And there are a few more. If we have time, we'll go through that. But if we just take problem incidence rate, and I'll quote you without giving the name of the company. So the top two problems that came out for them, the first one, and this is a big problem across, I think, all industry is the whole aspect of communication, which is we were not, I mean, they, as in they were not communicating the charges to the customer properly. They were not communicating the documentation to the customer as a result of the the customer would keep coming back multiple visits, multiple visits, only because the communication was done, not done right. Um, and, and there are several world-class companies that do this well. I mean, I know that Disney, for example, has a 
beautiful customer script when they take you, for example, through the Jungle Cruise ride. And there's so many learnings across industry that can take place. So anyway, coming back to this company, so the first problem that they had where they were not first time right was communication. And the other big one that they were finding was turnaround time, which means that they were just taking too long in their process to, so this company actually gives loans, gives housing loans. So they were just taking too long and the customer would be waiting forever and ever and ever. And there's just that much time that a house is available in the market. Yeah, Otherwise, it, somebody it, else is going to get it, Yeah, I was going to say that delay isn't just annoying. It could jeopardize their ability to buy the home. Absolutely. Right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So basically, the point here is that first time right is defined as for customer expectations, and we can have measures to track it. And if we track it regularly, we can bring down through process improvements, uh, the number of problems and therefore increase the first time right score uh, for an organization. So the first step is to look at it from a customer perspective. That would be the first step. Yeah. So there's a couple of things I'd like to explore a little deeper. You know, one is that um, that theme of customer focus, whether that comes from TQM or Six Sigma or Lean or like that's one pretty universal concept. That's part of all of these different frameworks over time is make sure you understand customers needs. Because I think you know there's always there's a risk that we do the wrong things more correctly, or I've heard people say doing the wrong things righter. We want to make sure we're doing the right things the right way. Like why, why focus on improving a process that doesn't add value to the customer to begin with, right? Absolutely. Actually, there's a very interesting uh, analysis that we do in customer satisfaction surveys, and sadly, companies don't use it that often, is that uh, to do a performance versus importance matrix. So, for example, if a customer is, if a company is, or organization is doing a great job in, let's say, providing 24-7 services, but the customer does not see all of the 24-7 services as that critical because let's say at 2 a.m., you may want to have access to a online kind of a funds transfer where maybe you suddenly think, okay, I owe my mom $200 and I want to credit it, which you can get onto your laptop and do. But at 2 a.m., nobody's want. nobody suddenly wants a bank loan granted, for example, because you would hope that people are more organized. And and companies sometimes spend so much of resources in getting their 24-7 services right, which may not be that important from a customer perspective. So the first thing to understand is what is really important? What does the customer really want? And this comes out from asking, uh, you know, customers. And so then you can save a lot of resources where you don't have to put a whole host of staff right through the night. They can sleep and come back the next day. There's an opportunity cost, right? They can do development work. They can add product features. They can do something else. Yeah. So So when you're asking for healthcare examples, one that comes to mind, from a previous guest who, who's been a guest many times, uh, Dr. Sammy Bowery, he's a dentist in um, Jacksonville, Florida. And we, you talked, Sumitra, about satisfaction surveys. 
So, um, you know, in the earlier stage of um, Dr. Bari's dental practice evolution, you could maybe have a survey that asks the patients, how comfortable was the waiting room environment? Dr. Bari questioned the whole idea of like, well, why is the patient even in the waiting room to begin with? <laughs> right. And he would talk about like, you could, you could improve the quality of the chairs. You could have better decor back in the day. You could have, you know, magazines that fit the demographics of your patients, but he eliminated the need for the waiting room even better. Right. And so instead of doing the way it's always been the, the quote unquote wrong thing better, now, you know, patients would just come be greeted and go immediately to a treatment chair. Like, I think that that's a better example of, you know, really focusing on the customer need. The customer need is not comfortable waiting room. The customer need is effective, efficient, safe, high quality care. Absolutely. And Mark, if, if with your permission, uh, I, if, if it's okay, I'll introduce an acronym because I found like as a student when I was studying for, for, for anything like a college paper, I found that if I could put the key concepts into an acronym, it would be easy for me to write down my answers. So I am proposing a small acronym and it's coming to my mind right now because of the example that you just shared about the waiting room. So I'll try to connect that um, so basically, the first time right acronym, according to my vision, is that first time right is an art. I know you'll have audiences that say, no, Sumitra, it's a science. But anyway, <laughs> bear, bear with my thoughts. So, sure. so first time right is an art. So the acronym is A-R-T. A stands for accuracy. And mm-hmm. accuracy is defined in terms of the customer's wants and needs and the type of service. So if you take airlines, for example, of course, it has to be better than Six Sigma because you, you, you want to arrive safely every time. <laughs> right. I have a friend who flies PIA frequently to go back to her hometown. And she always says, perhaps I'll arrive. And I kind of shudder to think fine because you know in an airline you the last thing you want is to for that to happen right you cannot even think of the entertainment channels or the fancy food or the flatbeds unless you can arrive safely so accuracy in the airline industry is is an absolute must yeah i was just gonna say real quick i always chuckle when somebody tells you and they mean well they'll say fly safe i'm like well i'll do i'll do everything i can i'm just sitting there Absolutely, absolutely. And healthcare is another brilliant example where if you're in surgery or a diagnosis, I know they always plan, the doctor tells you that, you know, this many chance, you you hope, right? You hope it's going to be 100% successful surgery. Um, And and in healthcare, if the nurse, uh, while typing out your certificates, misspells your name, it's fine. You know, you know, you know that you can get that corrected. So in the industry, that type of service, so accuracy again, um, uh, you know. So let's let's take a restaurant example. If I don't like spicy food and the then the chef puts spice, fine. I'll just drink a lot of water. But let's say I have a nut allergy. 
and then I'm going to have severe consequences. So I feel like accuracy is defined by the type of service and the industry. And there's, there's, an, inter- there's an interesting example from the delivery industry to highlight what can happen, the consequences of not being accurate. So, you know, during the pandemic, when all the stores were closed, we were totally in our country, at least dependent on Amazon for even groceries and other delivery agents. I used Amazon to order a honey bottle. And uh, I don't know if you're guessing what I'm going to say next, but it was a Winnie the Pooh moment, you know, like when Winnie the Pooh comes across (laughs) a honey pot, you're sure that it's going to be empty and you'll have a sticky situation. So the honey bottle was broken. Amazon has an excellent refund policy. So you just take a picture, you upload it. There was a phone call, no questions asked. There was a refund. And, And I'm like telling the service rep that, you know, do you mind explaining to the supplier to pack it well? And my husband, you know, he heard me and he says, you're not here to change the world. And knows what to do. So I go ahead and order the honey bottle again because all the stores are closed and I still need my honey bottle. And lo and behold, Winnie the Pooh moment again. And then third time, of course, they gave me the refund and everything. They were very polite, but I didn't have the patience to wait. I just changed the brand, brand which I had been loyal to for so many years. I just used another brand, which I knew was was reliable and everything. And it came beautifully packed, just like an eggshell. And the point I'm trying to make is that when we don't do a root cause analysis, when we don't look at our feedback loops, when the employee handling uh, the situation is not thinking, is not enabled, maybe not empowered, maybe not engaged, then the cost is customer loyalty. Yeah. Yeah. So let, let me let me tell a quick example. Um, here, I'll be right back. Um, as I fiddle around in my office, I've been holding up um, this. You, you've been kind, Sumitra, in mentioning my other podcast, My Favorite Mistake. So I have these coffee mugs. And um, on three different occasions, I've ordered mugs and they've arrived like this as I'm holding up in the video with the handles broken. And sometimes the mug itself is broken. And the company that I was using was very helpful about similar processes, wasn't through Amazon, but send a picture, we'll send replacements, we apologize. One time, um, I think it was like four out of the 10 mugs were broken. So they said, okay, we're going to send you four more mugs. Three of the four replacements were broken. (laughs) Oh, my God. And there were different packaging methods. Like they could have even come from different production sites um, within this company. But as a customer, like, yes, they, they made me whole. They would send me replacements or they would at some point just send me a refund. But it was a hassle. Like I've started, I start this mug was produced by a different manufacturer and they've managed to ship them without breakage and damage. So I don't know how this other company makes money. They have other products that are less breakable, but if your defect rate is that high, there there, there can't be any profit on making those mugs. And I don't know where the learning and the feedback loops are other than we're sorry, we'll give you a refund. That, That shouldn't be the end of the story. Absolutely. And the irony is that you're getting it on your my favorite <laughs> steak mug so yeah yeah um so 
coming back, so coming back to the acronym, so A was for accuracy, R was for responsiveness. We talked about 24-7 availability. So responsiveness can be in terms of time, how available is the organization? And again, it comes back to what is the customer expecting for that availability. Uh, however, responsiveness can be overridden by something called the relationship. And I, for that, I don't know if I mentioned before, my mother lives in a small town, which is four hours away. And we always tell her to relocate to Mumbai, but she doesn't want to because her favorite doctor lives in the same town as her and knows everything about her medical condition. But he is not available in the weekends. However, relationship precedes that and she knows that she can trust him and she says she's going to be fine in the weekend and nothing will happen to her. So responsiveness can be overridden by relationship is what I'm learning. The other kind of responsiveness is distance and to this I'll refer to the mobile hospital that we run. Uh, my family has a foundation and we, you know, in the remote areas of the Himalayas, you'll be able to appreciate this, Mark. There are some villages where a villager has to walk sometimes one full day just to reach a doctor. So we figured out this need and there's a mobile hospital which runs up to these remote inaccessible areas and there's a doctor on board with basic health care. Of course, at the base camp, there's a full hospital. But So responsiveness can be in terms of time or it can be in terms of distance. So that's the R. And then if we go to T, T stands for timeliness. You talked about waiting in the room. I think timeliness has to be looked at uh, both in terms of the wait time and the session time. So very often organizations just say, oh, but I just took 10, min 10 minutes to process this transaction. Well, how about the 20 minutes that a customer also waited? And I like to share this example from Domino's because they run a program where if they don't deliver a pizza within 30 minutes, it comes free. And I know a lot of teenagers wishing that it would be more than 30 minutes <laughs> just, to get, it free. Uh, just yeah. to get it free. And they have a process which is absolutely cut to the last minute. They have a seven minutes buffer. So their processing time is actually, including the delivery is 23 minutes and seven minutes is for unforeseen force you know, unforeseen circumstances. So they know that they're going to deliver it on time. And it's amazing that they can have a whole marketing uh, campaign around it. Disney, as you know, if you go to, if you if you wait, they manage expectations so well and the expected wait time from this point is like five minutes or six minutes. So that's timeliness. And if, if we have a minute, I'll share another interesting story. This is a personal story. And I call it my catch me if you can moment. I don't know if you've seen the movie where like, so I'm Tom. I have Hank. not. Uh okay. So it's it's an interesting film and it's related to bank fraud. So I'll quickly go through it. I'm sitting at home. This is a true story and it's really happened to me. So I'm sitting at home and I see a debit on my phone because that comes through an SMS. This is on my international travel prepaid card, which is a dollar denominated card because sometimes when I travel to the US, uh, it's not very easy to use my local India card because of exchange you know, fluctuations. And it's just always easier to pay it in a dollar card. Now, the fact that I'm sitting in Mumbai and there is a debit on my card, it means that there is a fraudster, you know, who's hacked into my account. So I quickly 
you know, there's a toll free number at the back of the car. They quickly call the number. And I don't know if you, you must have faced it. You know, you face that the AVR and you're just like, Thing. And first of all, I was very grateful that there's a 24-7 service because it is the evening and at least there's someone to talk to. Uh, but I'm in a kind of a panic because there's already a debit. And as I'm waiting, there is another debit and the card is with me and the fraudster is 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 just at it, hacking into my account. The customer service rep is extremely polite, wishes me, understands my problem. And all I say is that, you know, now that you've verified my ID, please block the card so that there is no more movement and I'm not and I'm not losing more money. Time is of the essence here, but the customer service rep says, hold on, I need to transfer you to the concern department. Oh, and no. that's that's where I've lost the challenge because it's I can't catch the Leonardo DiCaprio character. I'm stuck. And then by the time the person takes the call, a lot of the balance has already gone. The next morning, however, I have to say the relationship manager takes over. But by that time, so much of the money has gone away. Uh, It takes six weeks for them to restore my balance after I've lodged a police complaint, proof that I was physically in Mumbai and FIR and everything. The point of the matter however, is that since I got my money back, the fraudster had his money. The financial loss clearly is of the organization that issued the card. I know it's a pittance because it's nothing, but if you add up similar transactions. So that's the T of timeliness. I lost my catch me if you can moment, but as you know, there's the, if a dissatisfied customer tells on an average nine to 10 people as for the technical assistance research program. I'm telling you this story. I've told this story earlier to other people, my friends, they know that this is my pet story uh, complaining about timeliness. So, so the point is that we lose out. So that's the art. And then I have one more alphabet left in the acronym, but I'll let, you uh, speak before I otherwise it'll seem like a tirade that you know like uh, just- <laughs> sorry well so let me I'll let me share like two examples and I'd like to talk more about measurement because I think one of the things that's really interesting when it comes to quality at a customer service level end customer or even an internal customer in an organization there can be a gap between the actual number of problems and the number of reported problems. There can be a gap between those two things where the data can be unreliable. I I, I try like when I'm working with a client and um, let me use like, you know, the internal example. Let's say you're working on, again, sterilizing surgical instruments and trays and sets for the surgeons. There are unfortunately a number of problems. There might be missing instruments, incomplete sets, something that maybe there's a risk that it might not have been um, sterilized properly. And that problem gets found. But then you'll see charts that will say something like basically, you know, number of defects delivered to surgery. I'm like, well, no, wait a minute. That number is actually the number of reported defects, because there's a risk of people getting tired of reporting problems because if things aren't being fixed in that quality feedback loop, they'll stop reporting problems. 
Then there's a risk that executives see the chart. Well, the number of reported defects, or again, the chart says number of defects. Well, that number is going down. We must be improving quality (laughs) when that might not, that might not be um, the actual reality. So I think that's one risk when we look at measurement, we need to think about um, maybe the ART acronym, well, part of it applies. What's the accuracy of the measure? What's the timeliness of the measure to make sure that it's not misleading in some way? Curious your your thoughts about that scenario first. Yes. So I think measurement is always a challenge. One way to get about this is that in the survey, and of course, survey also has its limitations, but one of the questions we tried asking is, we asked the customers uh, on a statistically relevant sample, of course, we asked, have you faced a problem with us in the last six months? And we computed the problem incidence rate from there based on what the customer is saying. And this may not actually be correlated with the problems that we are reporting internally. But as long as the baseline that we use is consistent. So if we use the customer survey problem incidence rate reported from that question as the baseline and you're on your track, the downward trend on that problem incident, whichever measure you use, as long as you use that measure to consistently track, then you can show an improvement. Because like you said, you know, no measure is going to be foolproof. I mean, now there is so much of CRM, right, in customer relationship management. You have a lot of organizations like Salesforce doing a great job where they can gather real-time information across all contact centers and give you you actual information of problems. But ultimately, capture is such a human, there's there's such a human element to capture. Like I can say that, you know, like the customer talked to me and I convinced him and there was no problem left. And so I didn't report it. So that these, these, these are issues and they will never go away. But if we always consistently use the same source and track a downward trend on that source, I feel like we're good. And we can, as you said, set goals. And the way to do it is to set standards, which are customer relevant. Absolutely. Like you said, in this entire spectrum on the A, on the R and on the T. But I have one more alphabet left, which without which the acronym will be incomplete, which is kind of the missing link. And to me, in my vision and my mission, that is the most important. And that's the C. C is culture. And that completes the acronym and makes it CART. CART for me is always represents the closure of a sale. You know, like how if you are shopping online, you'll put things into your shopping cart or a supermarket, you'll be. And so, and CART also works backwards because if you work, if you look at it backward, it helps you to stay on track, (laughs) which is all the measures that we, so culture to me is the missing link. And why do I say this? If If first time right is an art, then culture is the landscape where that art comes to life. Culture is the roots of a tree. Culture is the foundation of a building. Peter Drucker said, you know, culture eats strategy. You can have an amount of strategy, but if the culture and the values are not 
align, then we're not going to go anywhere. Chris Bosch is the author of Culture Works, How to Create Happiness in the Workplace, where there is some interesting data which says that a culture-driven organization is actually 36% fewer in its defects. So therefore, it's 36% more first time, right? It has 30% more customer satisfaction, and it has uh, twice as much a chance of employees telling others to join the company. And three times the possibility of employees staying back in the organization, which I think in today's world of, you know, with the great resignation happening, uh, if the culture is right and people are feeling that this is an organization where they are appreciated, where they are engaged, they'll want to stay uh, back. The whole issue of each employee being a leader each employee having the chance for the organization to listen to them, each employee being tied uh, to uh, the values. And, and so uh, it, it's basically how the organization behaves. And so that's why I feel culture completes uh, the whole picture yeah. of first time, right? Yeah. So I wanted to ask you more about culture because a lot of organizations will say that they are customer focused or that that is their culture um, that may or may not, like the statement may or may not line up with the reality. But let's say an organization is deeply customer focused. People use phrases like, you know, the customer is king. I'm curious your thoughts about that and, and how employees fit. Like is this customer is king mean it's only the customer that matters or how do, how do we think about different stakeholders and their importance? So for me, uh, you know, as, as you may know, Mark, I have a vision. I have a dream to transform customer experience from this customer is the king mindset to the fact that an employee is the king who is delivering the transformational experience. I have a full program developed around this, but uh, we don't need to promote the program as long as we promote this uh, vision. Um, and, and, and I feel that there are so many things. If you look at Toyota, for example, I'll just take that example because I know that everybody in Lean can resonate with that. The fifth precept, I think, in, in the Toyota vision is that always have respect for spiritual matters and be grateful at all times. You know, it's it's interesting that there's a business case for gratitude. Yeah, uh, I think they, they, they call this these the, the Toyota precepts. Is that the word yeah. that they use? Yes, yes. Okay. Toyota yeah. Precepts, exactly. And this is the fifth precept. And, you know, so there's a business case for gratitude. Apparently, there was a research done of 2000 American employees, and only 10% said that they expressed gratitude. 35% said that they felt that expressing gratitude meant that they were vulnerable, for example. Uh, the American Express CEO, I think his name was Ken Chanel, he said that if we express gratitude in a timely manner, Manner and an authentic manner, we can still be very firm on our deliverables and expectations, and it won't come across as a sign of weakness. I'm saying all of this because when we build in a value system like gratitude, we can actually help the employees to feel more appreciated, more engaged. 
And that helps to bring their whole self to work. You know, gone are the days when uh, when we are saying, okay, I'll have my fun at home, uh, but work is a drag. It doesn't work like that. I attended a lovely talk by Francis Mirals, the author of Ikigai. And, you know, it's the Japanese art of living a long and healthy life. And I love that framework. And I feel that if if each of us comes up with our ikigai and our purpose of, of being and our purpose of working, irrespective of where we are, it's that framework of what do you love to do? What does the world need? What are you good at? What can you be paid for? If we can arrive at the intersection of that, irrespective of where we are at, then even a janitor can feel like a leader. So that is the whole uh, concept of then the janitor feels like he's linked to the organization's uh, vision and mission. And it's coming across, you know, in, in one of the organizations that I work with, we did an employee engagement survey. And, you know, it sometimes mirrors. It's the same organization where communication was the number one problem. They had top two problems. And, and I can say it because I'm not naming the company. So the top problem in employee engagement was communication. And guess what the second one was, was appreciation, where employees felt that they were not getting appreciated. And then there is nothing. It's a no-brainer. And that's why their customer satisfaction levels are where they are. Yeah. And appreciation doesn't really cost anything. That's the other powerful thing about appreciation. And the other the other very quick point is that people think appreciation is the same as recognition. It's not. Recognition is for performance, for doing a great job so you get a bonus and a promotion. Appreciation has nothing to do with your goals. Mm-hmm. And it's beautifully explained by the Greater Good Science Center, which is run by UC Berkeley and the John Templeton Foundation. And leadership coach Mike Robbins makes, makes a brilliant case of how I think he played baseball at Stanford and he relates it to that coaching situation of how you can be appreciated even though you didn't make you know the strike or you didn't make mm-hmm. the goal so yeah there 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 is a lot but we can go on and on about yeah. employee engagement. Well, I mean, there's I mean there, there's a couple of things that come to mind and again I'm going to connect it to some things in healthcare I think it's powerful when an organization Cleveland Clinic, for one, and I've seen this in other organizations, they call every employee, no matter what they do, they use the term caregiver, right? So Toyota might call everybody a team member. Oh, that sounds nice in one context. But they call everybody a caregiver. And I've seen this in other organizations where they will make the connection um, to to different frontline support jobs. Um, janitors or environmental services or you know dietary services and and connecting their job to the purpose. You're not just cleaning the floor. You're not just cleaning the rails on that bed. You're helping prevent infections, and that that's really meaningful to people when you make sure that that connection doesn't get lost. That is so beautiful, isn't it? Especially in today's pandemic situation. It- could turn out that he really has a very important role. And I want to quickly share because we sometimes feel, okay, fine. So there's this acronym. And is there any organization that's actually fulfilling all? And for that, I want to share. It's a Harvard Business Case 
study, which was done by Professor Thumke, where he rated this organization Six Sigma. And it belongs to the city where I am living in. It's a famous case study. You can Google it. They're called the Dabbawalas. Dabba is basically means a lunchbox and wala means the courier. And uh, it's, an, it's interesting how I remembered this case study. I recently joined the BIPOC table in Women in Lean and some one of the members actually mentioned an indigenous story of continuous improvement and then I remembered this story. They actually fulfill every single criteria that we talked of and it's interesting that Harvard Business School thought of it as Six Sigma. They are very simple. They are semi-literate. They they have very low levels of automation. They go by foot and bicycle, and they use Mumbai's very efficient train system to transport lunch boxes from people's homes. So people like home-cooked food in their offices. And they use all of the concepts of lean without even knowing what lean is. So simple things like standardized lunch boxes, which they pick up and pack in wooden crates. They use a coding system without writing the address on the lunchbox. They they code the resident the, the, the neighborhood where the office is, the floor number and the you know, the number of the person picking it. They have a democratic system. They have equity partnerships. So they uh, basically, if they know that they're going to make an X amount, 10 times the amount of what they're going to make, they put in themselves as a kind of an insurance fund. Uh, They hire and train their own people. The supervisors are from their own who are like in architects of improving the system. They come from the same ethnic area and their single mission is how can they deliver the food on time that is their mission and so they have a one o'clock cutoff they create that same buffer of 12 o'clock they use the principles of andon core jidoka system where if a customer particular customer is delaying cooking of food and not delivering it on time then the employee has a kind of an obligation to drop that customer so that the other customers don't suffer and so many other concepts the democratic principles, uh, you know, the shared bonds, uh, all of this coming together in one, uh, in one, uh, a simple organization, they don't even speak English. And it, it was beautiful. And, and, and that, that I remembered that, you know, even very simple people, if they follow a system, and they follow rigorous steps, mm-hmm. they can achieve the impossible. Yes. That's, 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 uh, I love that thought. And oh, I want to go back. You mentioned uh, the Women in Lean um, group uh, for, for people who aren't familiar with that. It's a group on LinkedIn and it's called Women in Lean, Our Table. I can put a link to that in the show notes or uh, women who are listening who want to connect with that group. Many of my guests um, are part of that group. Um, Karen Ross, Crystal Davis, uh, Karen Martin. Um, Elizabeth Swan, just to, to mention a few, are a part of this uh, this community that's really grown um, the last couple of years. So thank you, Sumitra, for uh, for mentioning that group. You know, before we wrap up, um, you, you did mention a, a program, and you said, "Oh, you, you don't need to promote it." But I, I, I do think it's fair. You know, you've given us uh, time and stories and a lot to think about today. Um, I, I can put a link in the show notes, but but please do tell us uh, briefly about the masterclass online and and how people can learn more. Right. So actually the whole topic of first time, right. 
came because in one of the workshops that I did, the MD of the company said, Sumitra, tell us how we can be first time right. So actually, whenever you put this up, I'm going to just play this. This is going to be my answer. But no, uh, let, let it, but, but to be serious. So uh, the workshop is basically online. It's customized for an organization's need. It begins with an actual assessment of their customers, which is kept confidential. And all the findings are built into the workshop. And it, there's also an employee engagement assessment. Again, all the findings are shared and then we build in the workings. It's interactive and it's called Delivering Customer Satisfaction, the Awaken Align Achieve Masterclass. And it comprises of four modules. The first one is vision, which is like setting the stage. Like we talked about the Toyota preset. So that's an example. Then there's a voice of customer. And then there's voice of process. Um, I know you, for example, I know you interviewed Dan Pink. One great example is his whole theory on, not theory, but his actual advice on autonomy, giving autonomy to people with the FedEx days and the ship it days and taking their ideas. So voice of process. And then the last module is voice of employee, where I believe that we need to bring the whole self to work. So it's the self-development piece as well as what the organization can do to help an employee feel more engaged yeah so that's that's the program there are a couple of other programs which I'm working on one on communication one on uh you know like breakthrough habits so hopefully we will get there in a continuous improvement situation we will evolve yeah well I hope people um if they're interested will go check that out you can find Sumitra on LinkedIn uh, her website is uh, her name, sumitravig.com. And I encourage people to go and check that out. And and you know, wanted to thank you um, for, for mentioning um, the foundation uh, and, and the work that you do to bring healthcare to people who would otherwise have trouble accessing that. I, I, I think that's wonderful. And I feel like maybe at some point, there's a whole separate discussion that we could have <laughs> about, sure, sure. About, about all of that. Um, but I, I want to thank you again, Sumitra, for uh, for for your stories and and for the CART acronym and you know some some thoughtful um, reflections and and it, it sometimes you know uh, at times things that were uh, that were funny. So um, thank you for bringing all of that to the episode here today. Really, really appreciated learning from you and talking to you today. Thank you, Mark. It's been my pleasure and a great honor. I wish you all the best in the work that you do, and I hope you don't have any more broken marks. <laughs> Thank you. Next time, right. Next time, right on those mugs. <laughs> Thanks, Sumitra. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.